0: Program. This is Auto World, and now, here's your host, Bob Long. Yes, sir, we are live on the North America, and we thank you so much for joining us here as we bring all the latest auto talk about restoration, we talk about uh, auctions, we talk about uh, technology, and uh, joining us in this hour of the program is one of our regular contributors. He is the man behind TheLooPage.com. that's right, Dan Watson will be joining us as we run down some of the questions that have been sent to us over the past week or so, and uh, don't be a stranger if you have a question during the program, or if you have a question anytime during the week, that can help you out as well. Well, both Dan and I live in the same neck of the woods, and um, one thing I've noticed being down here four or five years in Florida uh people take pride in their vehicles i mean i see some people in my neighborhood with some not very uh, aesthetically pleasing vehicles but there's a variety of them rolling around the city and um in addition to that okay let's go to dan from the com. he is the ceo of the well good
1: evening bob it's uh Good to be back with you on the radio show.
0: Absolutely, great to hear your voice. Great to have you back, and uh, we're going to talk about lots of stuff. And of course, we're going to encourage people to call in or to email us up anytime throughout the broadcast. Because you have more than twenty-five years of experience as a lubrication uh, expert, as a uh, a guy that started in the yams oil business as a part-time gig and and soon thereafter you were able to make it your full-time career
1: <laughs> yes it's been uh it's been a good uh as you would say in the automobile lingo it's been a good ride <laughs> Now, Bob, you know, you're always asking me questions, and i got a couple for you tonight here in this first segment that uh, okay. I've always wanted to ask you, and we just get right into things I never get a chance. And I think some of our listeners would like to know, too, so we'll flip our hat and I'll ask you a couple questions. And one is, uh, you know, you've owned a lot of cars. You're not as old as me, but I'm sure you've owned a lot of cars in your life, at least a dozen or so. And of all the cars that you've owned and operated and driven, What would be your favorite vehicle?
0: Ah, very good question, Dan. My favorite vehicle, and I'll say so far, because I'm still hoping one of these days I'll be (laughs) able to get one of these modern uh, machines, but uh, I I bought this brand new in 1998, and it was the fifth generation of the Corvette. So it was a Corvette uh, from 1998, and I kept it all the way until 2013, and I sold it at that point, but... That uh, was my favorite car that I've owned.
1: Well, now tell me a little about it. Was that their uh, big block V8 or what size engine was in it?
0: Well, back in that time, it was uh, offered. They did offer a Z06 variant, which had the LS7 engine in it. But in in the speak of the of the moment, it was called the LS1, and uh, it um, was an engine that put out close to 350 cubic inches. It was like 340 some odd cubic inches, uh, and it was good for uh, 350 horsepower and 350 pound-feet of torque. And the thing that I used to love about that car was the acceleration capability. For its time, it was one of the fastest vehicles uh, that That uh, you could get and it could scoot to zero to 60 in the fives which back in 98 and early 2000 that was a very fast vehicle and I drove this vehicle year-round even in Boston even though I was getting press cars all the time which um, uh, some of them were much more snow worthy I can attest to the fact that if you equip your Corvette With uh, I I would say, especially the fifth generation, the sixth generation, and the seventh generation of the Corvette, which is the current one that's out there now, if you put proper snow tires on the vehicle, despite the fact that it is real-wheel drive, and despite despite the fact that it's putting a decent amount of horsepower down, uh, it is... Uh, a vehicle that can be driven in the snow and I remember fondly once driving on Route 9 which is a, a highway that goes from Worcester to to Boston, it's kind of a two-lane, both ways, divided highway, not a modern super highway like the Massachusetts Turnpike. But I remember one ice storm, ice and, and snow storm, in which I was passing some Jeep Cherokees, and the folks were looking at me like I was absolutely totally crazy. But it had such a sophisticated traction control system. My first Corvette I owned was a 1993 model, which had a version of traction control, but that uh, version paled into comparison to the ones that went into the C5, and it's follow-up, the C6 and, of course, the modern C7. Uh, these traction control, control systems actually allow you to drive the car in snow. We're not talking feet of snow, but certainly two or three inches of snow or a combination of snow and ice, uh, you can uh, actually uh, drive these vehicles. And I can tell you a true story about this Corvette that I owned as well as uh, for The year 2006, I got married in 2006, I actually bought a a Christmas tree home inside that vehicle because it had a a huge cavernous area cargo space it was actually bigger than the trunk of the Chevrolet Cavalier and it was a hatchback design and so uh, you could stuff lots of of uh, gear in the back of that vehicle and loving music it had a, uh, a 12 disc CD changer which was great uh, fun for me as uh, you could mix uh, Uh, A CD in the dashboard, along with 12, which were located in the cargo hatchback area of the trunk, and it had the run flat tires. Yeah. uh, They were very expensive to replace. I i ended up putting about 60 some odd thousand miles on this vehicle before Uh, I just could not simply afford the repairs on the vehicle anymore because. It uh, just seemed to be, I would recommend anyone who buys a Corvette to get an extended warranty because it's the electronics that break on the vehicle, and you can't fix the electronics. They All they do is replace it, but I remember so many thousand-plus dollar repair bills on my beloved Corvette, and that's the only thing that, that soured me a little bit on Corvette ownership was the fact that uh, Uh, you you definitely have to continue to uh, pour money into them and perhaps if I had put my money in a German vehicle like a Porsche that uh, probably wouldn't have been the case but I'm an all-American guy and wanted to own an all-American Corvette and and as i said i 've done so, and I kept kept my first one for five years, and this one for to figure out how many years all told, but fifteen or sixteen years so uh, and got good fuel economy as well, which is something that you can 't say for the vehicles, the corvettes of the past, but uh, performance wise driver experience wise uh, it had a a glass roof on it, a plastic roof that could uh, be taken off and stored in the, in the trunk and also since mine had the optional glass roof uh, you could drive it year round with that glass roof in place and it would give you a little bit of the outside of the vehicle in the inside a little of that kind of convertible feel so that's my first vehicle and favorite well, car that I've owned so far
1: well when we, we got come back from questions? the break I want to ask you because you've test driven so many cars
0: Broadcasting from the middle of Corvette Boulevard and Stingray Avenue, this is Auto World with your host, Bob Long. Welcome back, everybody. Dan Watson, CEO of the Loop Page, is with us, and he's turning the tables on me and asking me some questions. We're having a little bit of fun, and we will get into all of your oil questions and lubrication questions upcoming. But this is uh, fun, Dan. Keep them coming.
1: Well, the next question I had for you is, Straightforward. I know you've test driven many cars over the years because you do that and you write reviews and you're able to do that because you know what you say has meaning to it after you drive these things. So, and it's short to try to think through them all, but so maybe there's one or two that impressed you more than the others when you drove the car. And of course, you know, it's there's all kind of different categories of cars like performance cars family cars different kind of things but somewhere in there there's something that you drove and you just said to yourself by golly this is a fine automobile and just trying to pick your mind and see if you remember a couple of those
0: well there are so many i've been fortunate enough when i was with motor Trend to drive uh, a few exotics. I've driven a Lamborghini Gallardo and a couple of different Ferraris, a 458 Ferrari and a 512 Ferrari, um, and uh, an Aston Martin Vantage. But um, those were certainly highlights. But I would have to say the car or cars that have impressed me the most. That I've driven over the years would be. I had a Bentley up in when I was living in Boston, a Bentley Continental GT GTC Speed, which was a uh, a very limited edition of an already very limited edition vehicle to begin with. This is a three hundred thousand dollar Bentley convertible with a twelve cylinder engine. <laughs> oh my goodness! L- literally, the vehicle is like driving a bank vault. I never felt anything like the the solidness of this vehicle and it weighed close to 6,000 pounds and yet was able to accelerate to 60 miles an hour in less than 5 seconds. It had all-wheel drive capability and of course it had that bespoke, absolutely gorgeous drop-dead interior. Another vehicle that certainly impressed me is the latest incarnation of the Jag. Wah, as us Americans tend to say, instead of Jaguar, like uh, the Brits would say, uh, the F-type in its highest form, which is called the F-type SVR in the R configuration. And this is a two-seater, a throwback to Jaguars of years ago. 550 horsepower, all-wheel drive, absolutely beautiful inside. It's a little bit cramped, but arguably many people consider this the most beautiful car on the road today. Uh, so if you get a chance to drive or, or just take a look at one of these cars, it's absolutely great. I also love uh, the uh, Jaguar. XKSS, which is the uh, limited production vehicle of the 2 Plus 2 Jaguar uh, that was sold for many, many years. But uh, there are many, I mean, other quick highlights. Uh, The Mercedes Maybach, uh, not the Maybach branded vehicle, which I got to drive at Motor but the Mercedes Maybach sedan I had for a week. And uh, Dan, it had a refrigerator in the back seat, and it had two champagne flutes, and all that was lacking was the champagne and and the video monitors on back of the both both speakers and a reclinable back seat. So those were some of the most memorable vehicles that I've <laughs> driven, great. but. Uh, I've been able to to drive many over the years and who knows knows maybe someday I should put my stories into some sort of book form or blog form and folks can have me reminisce like you're doing about some of the great vehicles that I've driven.
1: Well, I think sometimes you should add more of it into the end of the show because it's interesting and uh it tells a tale and uh those kind of things uh, I think the listeners like to hear this stuff because it it gives them some historical you know, uh, concept of uh, what you've been doing all these years and get some idea of what the host is all about because you've got quite a history in the automotive industry as far as uh, driving cars, talking about cars. You've been doing this for a long time.
0: Yeah, no, I sure have. The time has flown, but I have been doing it for quite some time and got to drive some of those very rare, rare vehicles when I was at Motor Trend, also got a chance to Very briefly drive the Ford GT supercar, the 2005-2006 supercar, uh, the Porsche Carrera GT, which is a V10 mid-engine Porsche with 600 horsepower and a manual gearbox, and also get a chance to drive the... uh, uh, Ferrari Enzo, which was the million-dollar Ferrari, which w- did, wasn't loaned to us by Ferrari. We had to talk a an, an owner uh, into loaning us his car so we could do instrumented testing on it with the promise of giving him four brand-new tires, and brand-new tires for a Ferrari Enzo cost several thousand dollars apiece so <laughs> i've 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 had my chance to 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 drive uh, lots of test cars and uh Presently, I'm not getting them every week, but I look forward to in the not too distant future to hopefully getting them back every week because, like you say, it does give me a really great industry perspective as to, you know, what a regular vehicle, um, you know, a Mazda 3 or a Ford Focus or a Ford Fiesta or a Chevrolet Tahoe or a Chevrolet Suburban, uh, feels like for this model year. And, uh, I'll take your advice, Dan, and integrate more of that into the broadcast.
1: Yeah, I think you should, and you know, the, uh, if, when I go places, uh, when I fly, I try to rent a car that's different than something that I drove the last time, just to, for the difference, Mm -hmm. say, what's it like, right? And not too long ago, I drove, uh, a new Ford, uh, Fusion. And my gosh, I was impressed because, you know, I'm still driving these cars that are from 2001 and 2005, that kind of stuff. The electronics have just gone over the top in these new cars. And I I thought I'd have to, I may have to get out the owner's manual, you know, in the rental car and and read up on it to figure out how to get down the road because these things get so complicated with all their electronics and stuff. It's just amazing.
0: You know, what great technology the Fusion has and available in hybrid form and and plug-in electric hybrid form as well, and you've got uh, a car that has the face of a little bit of Aston Martin. Ford at one time owned Aston Martin, and uh, the Fusion has been a a good success, and I hate to see Ford getting out of the passenger car business. Uh, They're going to continue, of course, to make the Mustang, but what they're doing supposedly in in the not-too-distant future, they're going to discontinue all Traditional uh, cars, the only car you'll be able to buy from Ford is the uh, the Mustang, and they're going to focus on SUVs and crossovers and trucks. And growing up in a Ford family, that, that really pains me. I, I have a problem with that, Dan.
1: Well, and the same thing I saw where uh, GM is. They're going to discontinue six models, which of one is the Chevy Cruze, which surprises me because I thought that car was rated by one of the magazines as one of the best small cars uh, made in North America and all of a sudden but it's the same thing they're saying that they I think what it really is is saying hey we don't we don't compete well with the Japanese in this area we need to move to what we do well
0: exactly you hit the nail on the head and when we come back on the other side we'll get into your questions 855-660-4261 that's your gateway to talk to myself, Bob Long or Dan Watson, CEO of the Lou Page, give McKenzie a call right now. I'm Bob Long. And now back to the show with the highest octane, Auto World, and your host, Bob Long. Dan Watson is with us, the CEO of The Lube Page, thelubepage.com. Dan is the most knowledgeable man that I know of and in the entire world when it comes to lubrication. He's been a lubrication specialist for over 25, certified and pasteurized and homogenized. He has got all the credentials, and he knows all there is to know when it comes to lubrication and when it comes to uh, not only what to put in your car, but also in your ATV or your boat so don't be a stranger please uh, send us your emails send us your texts send us uh, your questions any way you would like to and also don't uh, be a stranger call us up at 855-660-4261 we got a first question from uh, Huntsville Alabama where we're heard on a number of stations in the great state of alabama and uh, this one says dan i can can i run diesel oil in my gasoline pickup truck i have a gas truck and two diesel trucks and i'm looking for one oil for all and that seems like a very logical question but uh, dan you've got some important facts to tell dan
1: well it is uh It's a good question because I run into this all the time with people with a small fleet, and they've got some diesel and some gas-operated trucks, and they want to know, can't I just run one oil in here? What's the problem? And if you do, you do need to run the one that's certified for the diesel because you can cross that over to cover most of the gasoline requirements, but an oil that is just a gasoline-rated engine oil does not necessarily qualify for a diesel application. There's some different additives, the way that you uh, blend the additives into the oil for that difference of that uh, byproduct of combustion coming out of that diesel than what you have out of a standard gasoline engine. Now, that being said, the first problem you run into these days is whether you can use the same viscosity or thickness of oil in both the diesel and the gasoline application. Now, if they're new diesels, It's easier to do because a lot of new diesels now are are saying to use 10W30 or 5W30 diesel engine oil, whereas for years the flagship was to use nothing but a 40-weight oil, 1540 or 10W40 weight oils as a diesel engine oil. But with um, better fuel-air mixture control with turbo diesels and uh, higher-performance injectors and so forth, we're able to not worry so much about fuel contamination thinning the oil so we can drop down to a 30 weight oil (laughs) excuse me and when doing that what you have to look for is that the diesel oil carries the necessary api rating for gasoline for your gasoline engines for example right now the current api classification is sn as in SAM, and November SN, and the current diesel classification is CK4. So if you've got both those things on that bottle of oil, then you can use them wherever that's required. That's what you have to look for to make sure it's there. That oil would satisfy the gasoline SN, and it would also satisfy the diesel CK4. So you want to look for those on the uh, information that's listed on the bottle and make sure they're there. And then after that, you're trying to find a compromise of where you can operate with thickness of oil. You might have some gasoline truck that says that you got to run 5W-20. You can actually run 5W-30 in that truck without any difficulty, unless there are some times you couldn't, but most of the time you can. So you might be able to run a 5W-30 <laughs> heavy-duty diesel oil that also qualifies as an SN gasoline engine oil, and away you go. But again, I'll say this before we drop from this question: most oils that are strictly rated gasoline won't qualify to be, to go into a diesel application. So you just got to be careful of that.
0: Very good advice. Our telephone number is 855-660-4261. I know a couple of people have called in and, and given some questions to Mackenzie, and we'll get to those. But we'd love to talk to you live and in person. Don't worry about talking to either myself or or Dan. We're, we're going to help you out. So take advantage of this wonderful opportunity, 855-660-4261. Monty wrote us from Lakeland, Florida. And uh, he has a, a bass boat with a 150 Evinrude outboard motor. This motor comes with the ability to use petroleum, but has a switch to use synthetic. Synthetic is recommended. Will I hurt the engine by using petroleum? Another great question.
1: These Evinrude E-Tex are really space-age technology. These are fantastic uh, outboard motors. Um, they probably save the outboard industry because the technology that they use meets all the California Air Resource Board uh, pollution requirements, so they're very, very clean running engines. And I would stipulate they're very, very clean running engines when you use the synthetic setting. When you use the petroleum setting, uh, they won't pass the uh, California Air Resources Board requirements because they put out too many hydrocarbons. Why is that? Well, that's because what these motors are doing is automatically mixing the lubricant, the oil, into the gasoline at ratios needed to provide proper lubrication for the engine. Now, I said mixing the gasoline. That's the old model. The newer models, they are actually direct injected, and there's no, fuel, no oil put in the gas. It comes in with the air volume that comes in. Uh, that the injector shoots the fuel into inside the cylinder. So much more complicated than in the past. But you uh, you will not hurt the engine by running petroleum. They tell you you could run petroleum. They don't recommend it because it doesn't burn out clean. It starts to clog up the engine. Uh, it violates the pollution control requirements, all those kind of things. So it's sort of a word to the wise from the this fantastic Evinrude company that makes these things, they're really telling you, hey, the day of of petroleum two-stroke oil is over. Just get over it and run the high-quality stuff in these engines. And by the way, Bob, I don't know if you've you've been around pricing many of these outboards. This guy says he's got a 150-horsepower Evinrude outboard. Uh, That probably ran a about fourteen thousand dollars when it was new.
0: No kidding.
1: Yeah. Uh. No, that, that's just the is out of the world, and sometimes so is the price. But there is just it is nonsense to not protect that kind of high output engine with the very best lubrication you could put in it. I mean, you, in my opinion, you just disregard that setting that says you could run petroleum. Never ever think of that in your mind because. This is a high-performance engine that will run for years and years. In fact, some of them are being sold by a friend of mine here in town. They were offering up to a seven-year warranty, factory warranty, for no additional cost straight with the purchase of the engine. Seven years on an outboard motor uh, for 100% warranty that you don't pay for nothing if anything goes wrong. I mean, that's high confidence in that, that motor. And... For goodness sakes, folks, you can afford a little bit of high-performance, high-quality oil to protect that. So
0: Absolutely.
1: I just, you know, All it's right. that old thing of, an old saying, penny-wise and a pound-foolish, don't ever scrimp <laughs> on lubrication, for God's sake.
0: Yeah, that is so true. we got a question from Jimmy in Arkansas, and this is an interesting one. He has a Swamp Buggy, and you'll have to explain to folks what is exactly a Swamp Buggy. And it's equipped with a Chevrolet 454 big block engine. Love that engine. It's old-fashioned with a Holly four-barrel carburetor. He says he pushes it very hard and wants to know what oil you would recommend.
1: Well, uh, number one, let's explain to you what a Swamp Buggy is. The Swamp Buggy is a... Usually, uh, the frame of something. Maybe you would have a, I don't know, Ford pickup truck. Well, they got the music coming in. We'll explain this in detail when we come back from the break.
0: Yeah, when we come back, 855-660-4261.
1: Hey, it's Billy F. Given. It's Easy Top, and you're listening right here at Auto World.
0: Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for being here. I'm Bob Long along with Dan Watson, CEO of TheLubePage.com, and we're answering a question from Jimmy in Arkansas who's got a swamp buggy. And before the hard network break, Dan was beginning to tell us all what a swamp swamp buggy is, and then we can get into the nuances of the question.
1: Well, these are, uh, in a sense, homemade vehicles. Sometimes you'll find somebody who will manufacturing for people, but what they are is a, we call it a buggy because it's on some type of a frame, which is like an automotive frame. Could have come from the old days anyway, you'd build them from a, a truck frame, any truck frame, uh, you know, just so as you had a solid frame. And then you start putting all the things in the engine, the transmission, the differential, these things. But what this thing has is tires sometimes. It might be four or five foot high, uh, or it could be the big balloon tires which are about uh, maybe four foot high and about 18 inches wide and these things have uh heavy mud grip tread on them and the idea is this buggy goes through i mean literally it's called a swamp buggy for a reason you're out in the everglades or in the bayou country and you're going through real swamp area now in arkansas you'd find that closer to the rivers and then the swamp areas around there, <laughs> but I'm sure they have some sloughs and other low areas that they can drive these buggies in. And so they're fun to drive, and even in uh, Florida, uh, places like down around Naples, Florida, they'll have swamp buggy races. Of course, everybody's got to race anything has got an engine. <laughs> and sooner or later, they got to find some way to do it. But these guys will be driving these things in, in, in man-made pits of mud to see how they'll go through that, and it's it's quite a, a nasty thing to watch. They're swinging mud everywhere. But anyway, <laughs> they use big block powerful engines because what they really need on these things to turn these big tires is a lot of torque. And so, as you know, Bob, um, big block engines develop better low-end torque. A uh, smaller cubic inch engine, you have to get your horsepower and your um RPM up. You have to have the RPM up maybe to 3,500, 4,000 RPM to start developing really good torque. Well, a 454 will be developing pretty good torque around 2,000 RPM. It'll be really ready to move those big wheels with the torque it develops. So that's why we see the big block. And 454s and, I think, in the past, 460 Fords, those are Mm -hmm. favorites of those kind of engines. Smaller Swamp Buggy might have a 350 Chevy or a 350. Uh, Cleveland, those types of engines available. But when you look at um, this one, you can tell that it's designed for power carburetor and a holly of all things. So this thing has probably got plenty of power when you open those two (laughs) back barrels and flood it full of fuel. I imagine it will really uh, push out some power. Now, you're talking about the oil for it, and even though it's a big block and it's got a lot of power, we have to remember it's a Chevrolet engine. And they pretty much are set on 30-weight oils for Chevys. Um, under some circumstances with this, depending upon if it had extra power, like uh, some type of blower on it or something, you might go up in thickness of oil to a 40 or 50. But for this, if it's a standard 454, I'm going to say that there's a terrific match with the AMSOIL 10W30 Signature Series would be all the protection that the engine would need. Uh, unless it's had some other things done to it, which uh, Jimmy would have to get in touch with me through the the loop page because if he's done some other things, then it might move it up to a 40 or 50 weight. But if it's all stock, uh, it's a 30-weight engine. That's what Chevy made it for. And so a 10W30 in our premium synthetic would be the perfect match for that big block engine.
0: Great advice, and again for for Jimmy and all of our listeners as well. Dan, why don't you give out your telephone number and your website and your email as well?
1: Well, my telephone number is just 800-370-2986, and the website is uh, thelubpage dot com, and of course my email corresponds to that is dan watson.
0: It's that simple. We got a question from Amy in the state of Oregon, and Amy says she's been listening to us over the last uh, several weeks and is intrigued. She says she's very much of a green person and would like to put an oil in her vehicle which is greener than than uh, some of the other oils that are out there, and wants to know if Amsoil Oil is a uh, in her words here a a green type oil and also does it have effect on fuel economy and in getting more fuel economy from your engine that's kind of a vague question but an interesting one
1: it's good to know here's the thing that you got to look at with AMSOIL AMSOIL is a one-year, our signature series is a one-year or 25,000-mile oil. Let's say you're a high mileage and you drive those 25,000 miles. Well, if you were using the standard industry 3,000-mile oil changes, that would be eight oil changes. So you would have 40 quarts of waste oil created that that year by doing normal petroleum oil changes, or you could have five quarts of AMSOIL as so-called waste oil now looking at what we do in the environment and how we treat waste oil and whatever we do with it having five quarts of waste instead of 40 quarts of waste is a pretty green option in other words we're reducing the amount of this product that will go through in order to lubricate the engine and the result of that is is that we put less oil into the recycle business and less oil to deal with that has been used, used motor oil. I think that's pretty green in itself. Now, the next aspect is we look at fuel economy. A high-quality synthetic like AMSOIL produces anywhere, give or take, a percent of about a 5% difference in fuel economy on average. So what that means is that if you normally were going to use 500 gallons of fuel in a year, you would use 25 gallons less. Okay, so here we go again with less fuel used, less emissions, all right? And the other part about it is is that most of the high-performance synthetic oils like Anvil Signature Series are made from natural gas, which we give natural gas credit as being a more of an environmentally friendly product than its counterparts in crude oil. So I think... It is moving in the right direction. Now, some of the synthetic oils that are purely ester-based are biodegradable. So, again, what happens with the motor oil, you can't call it biodegradable and get away with it because it gets contaminated by all the things that come in uh, touching it from the internal combustion engine. So you really couldn't dispose of it as a, um, a completely biodegradable product. But, in fact, since... If it does get into the environment, the petroleum side or the hydrocarbon side of it uh, would be biodegradable and would disappear but could leave some residue from the uh, additives in gasoline or something that would have gotten into the oil. So we don't say that you can go out and dump it on the ground as biodegradable, but a biodegradable (coughs) oil is rated by the EPA as something that within uh, what's called five half-lives will disappear okay and that's a term that's kind of funny to understand but it has to degrade at a certain rate if it does it at a certain rate to where it disappears then it's considered biodegradable so that's the best i can put up right now i can also say that that's great other lubricants like transmission oils and gear lube since they last anywhere from uh three to eight times as long as petroleum. They are environmentally friendly by producing less, considerably wet, less waste oil across the board.
0: Excellent. And I'm sure that will make Amy feel a whole lot better. We'll see if we can squeeze in a question from Art in California, listening most likely on our Fresno station. The question Art has is What is the best fuel additive for cleaning my direct injected gasoline engine?
1: Well, you know, the answer we're going to have to say to that is you, <laughs> you can clean the injectors, and you can clean the cylinder out some, but you can't clean the backside of the intake valve, okay? That's the direct-injected engine. None of the additive comes in in the Airstream with gasoline, so it can't clean the back seat of the in, uh, intake valve. However, Avzo makes a product called Performance Improver, and it is extremely aggressive at cleaning all the carbon out of the cylinder, Off the top of the piston, so it'll do a good job of decarboning the inside area that it can get to. But again, you can ask any of the manufacturers of direct injected engines. There's nothing that will clean that you can put in the fuel that will clean the intake valve. The manufacturer has to do that at the dealership.
0: Great words of advice from Dan Watson, CEO of The Loop Page, thelubepage.com. That's your destination, Dan Watson at thelubepage.com. Dan, time just flew here this week. Thank you for your time.
1: All right, Bob. See you next time.
0: Sounds great. That's going to do it for this hour.